Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. In this episode, my guest is Andrew Lang, the author of Unmasking the Inner Critic, Lessons for Living an Unconstricted Life. Andrew is an educator in the Pacific Northwest and an alumni of Richard Rohr's Living School for Action and Contemplation. His interests include somatic shadow work, introspective examination, contemplative spirituality, and an embodied focus on shifting how we show up in our communities. In the conversation, Andrew and I discuss the inner critic, constrictions in life, the wisdom of introspection, finding clarity, embodied awareness, wisdom in daily life, and much more. Without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Andrew Lang. Andrew, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. It's uh, it's nice to meet you. I'm grateful for you taking the time to come on. And we're going to be chatting about your book, Unmasking the Inner Critic. Uh, but before we get into the book, we generally start with some sort of question of, you know, how did this all get started? Maybe how did you come to have an interest um, in this type of work? Um, I think a large part of it just comes from experience. I grew up in uh, in a space and an environment where I saw a real um, a difference in what was being said around spiritual depth and inner work and just like how do you connect with the meaning of your life um, and what was being acted out. And so I think from the very get-go, I had a leaning towards, uh, you know, how do we get to the depth within this? How, how do we go deeper? Um, and so I, I think my story walks with that. When I was 18, uh, I was 18, we were leaving a church that I had basically grown up in. And it was the last Sunday. And this, even though I had chosen baseball over religion pretty clearly at this point, <laughs> uh, this was still my crew. This was still my community. These were still the people that that I had grown up with. And so I'm sitting there and I'm just sobbing uh, because I'm I'm witnessing two massive transitions: a transition from me for for high school to college, and a transition out of a out of a safe space that I had uh, been brought up in. And at the very end of the service, this tall man walks across the the room to me. And what you got to know about the the man is that he was fully institutionalized within this community. I mean, he had been there for sixty years, and everything, every committee that you could possibly have, he had been on, he had been leadership, everything. So he walks across the room and he comes straight to me and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, men don't cry. And in that moment, I think this is really the jumping off point for me into a more intentional look at what does going into my inner life mean. In that moment, I realized that here is a person who has been fully raised within a space that was supposed to bring wisdom, right? That's the promise of spiritual communities that you build wisdom over time. And you, you in some way, you know, move towards enlightenment, whatever word you want to use. And 
And I didn't see it because here he was rejecting everything about my experience of humanness in that moment. And so I, I left saying, if this is spiritual formation, if this is inner work, if this is the outcome of a life spent in this space, I don't want it. And that really pushed mm-hmm. me into the, the, the search for what are the practices that will allow for, for depth to occur. I, I'm grateful for that background. I appreciate you, you sharing that. And, and maybe that's a great transition into the, into the book. We generally try to define terms to, yeah. to start off with on a, on a basic level. So the, the title, this unmasking the inner critic, how would you maybe describe or define the, the inner critic for anyone listening, maybe unfamiliar? Yeah. I think a lot of people think the inner critic that we have is like, a person in our head, a, you know, a singular voice, a singular source, the person who runs, runs the show, at least in the negative, in all the negative ways. And I haven't had that experience. I don't feel like that is the, the way that my inner critic moves within me. So when I talk about an inner critic, I talk about a collection of narratives that we carry within us. And those narratives aren't necessarily voices. They're not necessarily voices in our head. They're um, bodily impulses. They're the things that, you know, when we're walking down the street and we notice like, oh, I'm carrying a terrible posture right now, um, or even if we don't notice it and we straighten up, you know, we move. So there's more of an embodied uh, reality of the inner critic. It moves through our body sensations. It moves through our inner narratives. But it's basically the collection of these inner parts of us that are were developed for a good reason they were developed to protect us from something and yet over time they now just sit within us as um, almost like leftovers and here's an example of that resma menicum he's a trauma specialist and he says um, trauma decontextualized over time begins to look like personality you know when something happens to you young that makes sense in that moment so you create a coping mechanism at that moment over time that um, the threat might go away, but the coping mechanism has stayed. And soon enough, you get older and that coping mechanism, maybe it's for me, it was very much, I'm not good enough. And that protected me because it kept me from having to try. Uh, even though the threat was gone, that narrative, that inner critique stayed with me and became part of my core personality. So when I talk about the inner critic, I really talk about this collection of ways that we, um, we distance ourselves from our inherent dignity. How about this word constriction, which may come up in the, in the conversation, the book outlines nine constrictions, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. Yeah. In the Western world, my experience has been, so I've, I've been leading workshops for, for 10 years or so now. And my experience both internally and in these workshops is that most of us have been trained to engage mostly in our heads engage the world through cognitive lenses um, and definitely a, a leaning towards the written word and, and, you know, narratives as, Oh, if I can just change the self-talk I have, everything will get better. And what the reason constrictions is a word that I think is more accurate is that these narratives that we have one, they don't often, they don't always show up just as the sentence of, Oh yeah, I'm not good enough. I know that. Like I, I know that feeling. Um, they often just show up in our actual bodies in the ways that our muscles literally constrict. 
So for me, the feeling of not being in control, I don't go around the world noticing when I don't feel in control. My back tells me because my shoulders and my back muscles clench. And so when I talk through, when I use the word constrictions, I mean these narratives that constrict us in our bodies. They constrict our, uh, the ways we show up in our social life. They constrict our spirituality, our actual worldview, our outlook at, at life. And so it's more of a holistic. I really want to help people move from their heads into a more um, thorough understanding of the ways that our bodies communicate to us. And if I can give one example, this is a practice that I often lead people through. And it's a, it's a practice of, of just recognizing. But throughout your day, if you set a timer on your phone for you know every two hours, and every two hours, all your timer tells you to do is notice where your tension is or notice, are you hunching your shoulders? Almost everyone I've run this with has said that the majority of the day, that timer goes off and they're like, holy hell. I was clenching my shoulders <laughs> and it, it's because we move through our day uh, largely with this tension being carried that we're not even aware of. And so much of the work of unmasking, much of the work of working through our constrictions is the awareness that the constrictions are there in our body. And then we can begin to um, do introspection practices of, whoa, I am feeling out of control. My body just told me that and I was aware of that. Now I can cognitively move through you know, what are the things, what, what are the things that are causing that? And I want to ask you maybe broadly speaking about the wisdom of introspection. You know, the word you just used uh, throughout the book, there's many uh, reflection questions and, and practices. So it's a very practical book that is to be integrated in, in daily life as I, as I read it. So could you speak a little more about maybe how you think about the wisdom of introspection? Well, one thing I'll say is I'm a teacher by training. And so when I, when I started writing this book, I was like, it's never going to be a, a thick, massive book of theory. It's, it's the whole thing is practices and, and light narration and framing, right? Um, so that's where that, a lot of that comes from. Is I'm, just a, I'm a teacher. I've taught high school for seven years. So that's, that's where I come from. The way I think about wisdom, especially in the practical sense, uh, is really a response to what I've uh, what I've seen, and so I'll, I'll frame it this way. I think a lot of times we are taught that wisdom is when you grow older and you're simply able to share what you've learned in life, share you know the the good things and the bad things and how you can overcome obstacles. I think that is all important, and I think that has a has a space in wisdom. But there is a another part of wisdom. And I'll go back to my story with the the man when I was 18. His name was Dale. Um, what I experienced in that moment was the blowing of his trauma through my body, right? Whatever trauma he dealt with in his life that told him he couldn't be himself, he couldn't cry, he couldn't even be around another man who was crying without feeling like he had to step in and say something. He was blowing his own fears and insecurities through my body. And because so, my central nervous system then had to deal with it. Right. And so it's not just cognitive. When I think about what wisdom is, I think about what are the ways that we can age and get older, um, not necessarily just with age, but you know, with life experience and become a force of healing rather than blowing our trauma through other people's bodies. So a wise person, an elder 
isn't someone who has a nice quip that they can share, right? A little platitude when someone's suffer- like in the midst of suffering. A wise elder is someone who is not blowing their own stuff through someone else's body and is instead able to sit person to person and help that person heal the stuff that's within their body. I think that's what a what a person who has wisdom um, does for each other, does for another person. And maybe we could jump to the final chapter to to begin. Um, you call this particular constriction. I do not know who I am. How do you, man, maybe this is a big question, but you know, how do you think about self transformation in general, as you were just tr- talking about there, knowing ourselves or maybe letting go. There's just so many things that, that fit underneath a, an umbrella there, yeah. I guess. This is the power of introspection. And this is the power of, of being intentional. There's a, a great – so I, I was at the Living School for Action and Contemplation down in Albuquerque for a couple of years. And one of the teachers there, James Finley, um, he's a, uh, he was a monk for six years under Thomas Merton. And then uh, when he left the monastery, uh, he became a um, psychiatrist, psychologist. Um, but he did psychotherapy with, with folks and I guess that would make him a psychotherapist. There you go. Uh, and, and one of the things he, he shares, he shares this beautiful analogy that has really stuck with me. He says, if we're not careful, we can find ourselves skimming over the depths of our own life. And that just hits me every time skimming over the depths of our own life, because I think what not knowing who you are is is you're stuck on that autopilot. You're stuck with the narratives of what other people have given you. You're stuck with your protective mechanisms that worked at some point, but are now just running without you noticing. Um, and you're just going from thing to thing. And so the, the, the power of introspective practices, the power of intentionality of choosing to no longer skim and choosing to, to dive into the waters the, the power of that is that you begin to notice the you that is underneath those different layers. And I think that's where that's where the phrase unmasking originally came from for me is that I imagined so many of us walking around with a ton of different masks on and we change our masks for the different you know spaces that we're in. But what are the practices and the spaces that we can move in? What are the ways that we can move the postures we can embody that will allow us to take off? our masks just a little bit, like not even big acts of like, now I'm maskless and I'm going to face the world totally vulnerable. Cause that's, that's <laughs> like, that's going to be real hard um, and probably damaging. But how are the ways that we can unmask for two seconds more today than yesterday? And I love, I love that you started with the, the last chapter. Cause I think that's the entire book leads to that last chapter. You know, it names all these different constrictions and then it gets to the end point which is, you know, and I don't know who I am. And I think that's the constriction of all constrictions. And I think in large part, that might even be an underlying constriction underneath all the other ones. That's interesting. And maybe we could spend a bit of time here. Um, But I want to mention to the listeners, though, James Finley, who you mentioned Mm -hmm. there, has a, a great podcast, Turning to the Mystics. That if anyone listening is is interested, that would be a good one to check yeah. out. Think about like the unmasking. Uh, I love how you said, you know, maybe if it's just for two more seconds today than it, than it was, 
you know, yesterday. But I think about the one thing, like the the courage, Mm. maybe sometimes that is required because it can be fear can come can come into play in in so many different things. And how do you discern? You know what to do. How do you discern whether a, a protective mechanism is necessarily no longer needed? I remember. I think it was the very first um, podcast episode I did, and this is you know around one thirty. So it was a few years ago, but I, I remember it uh, very clearly of the guests talking about growing up in Ireland and. A, a very dangerous place of, you know, having to, you know, get underneath uh, tables and in closets, you know, like a real dangerous situation. And then recognizing, you know, many, many decades later that that was still kind of a, a reaction, but you come to, you know, you have to discern wisely maybe and recognize that this is no longer needed. Yeah. You know, I have different skills and abilities and wisdom and and things like that, you know, now that I didn't have uh, you know, when I was 5 or something. Um so to put out a little bit there, could you maybe talk anything that comes up around discernment and courage and and knowing when to to do what? You know, the first thing that comes to my mind and I've never dug too far into this story. Um I I've never even researched whether it it it's accurate. Uh, but it's a story I heard, um, and it's it's one of Richard Rohr's stories. But he calls it, uh, I think he refers to it as discharging the loyal soldier, and he tells the story mm-hmm. of Japanese soldiers coming back to their communities at the end of World War II, and there being a communal ritual around welcoming back and essentially saying thank you for what you have done, the skills that you, um, the skills and the things that you did during this time. Thank you. They are no longer needed. What we need now is for you to re-enter into our community as a as a safe and and a you know healing voice and person. I think about that a lot. Is that one of the core components is community? Um, in order for us to really dive deep, there has to be we have to be plugged in to in some capacity, and it doesn't mean like institutional community. I mean like who are the three people? Who are the two people that you you can have real talk with? But I think that's a core component uh, of that of of being able to shift and lay down some of those masks or those protective mechanisms. Um, you've got to have someone else who can see you and can bear witness to to what you are moving through and 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 move with you in some ways. I I think also it's just scary. I mean, you talked about the the courage, the bravery piece. It's so scary because when we, let's say I am a successful lawyer and I've made my entire career defending, you know, people who have done terrible things, right? Um, but it's been very successful. It's a hard thing to lay down that mask because guess what? That's who I am. When P and, or someone, I'll, I'll speak to my own experience. It's really hard for me to not tell people I'm a teacher because that's part of my personality and it's respected by the broader community. So when I say I'm a teacher, it's an instant um, connection builder. Everyone has an experience of a teacher. There's immediate questions that everyone has. And and there's a sense of, um, you know, wow, that's hard work, but it's good work, right? 
And so me laying down that part of my personality and being able to say like, actually teaching is what I do for money. Like teaching is the profession I have, but I am Andrew. Like I am much deeper and more than that. That's really scary thing because I've had success with that mask. I've had success with that or that hat, if you want to use that analogy. Um, but a community, and this is where I think partnership and intimate community, regardless of if it's partnership or or not, intimate community, having a person close to you, being able to call you on your stuff becomes a lifeline because no matter what mask I'm wearing, they can say, hey, I need you. Like, thank you for being a teacher. That's great stuff. I need you to take off that mask right now. And I need you to enter this space in a different way. Yeah, I, I think that those are the things that are immediately coming to mind. It's just the the power of having someone. I, I in the book I refer to it as a circle of trust. Who who's within that intimate circle of trust that you can you can be the you that is underneath those masks, or that you can play with that. You can explore who that is in their presence and check in with them. I have a friend uh, in New York that whenever I go through something, he's the call because he he's going to bear witness to it and just sit there and listen, not give platitudes, right? listen, respond, yeah. ask questions. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating thing. Um, some of these um, things feel a bit like a tightrope walk. Yeah. Maybe that's... <laughs> I, I think of um, this thing of like knowing who we are. Like As you're talking about that, I'm thinking of uh, the three questions that Henry Nouwen you know, put, it's like, I can only remember two, but maybe, you know, the third, I'm not what I do. I'm not what people say about me. Um, is the third one. I'm not what I've <sighs> successes. Maybe I, yeah, I can't remember. I read it years ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I think it's something along that, uh, you know, maybe I'm not what I, what I have or, you know, something, but and um, you know, someone that comes up in the in the book is is Thich Nhat Han, and he he says that if you have enough time and patience, if you sit with the question, mm-hmm. "Who am I?" You might be surprised at at what you find. And and I, you know, I encourage anyone anyone listening to not necessarily you know, take uh, our, our word for it here or Thich Nhat Hans, but, you know, experience that for, for yourself. But this thing of um, coming to the, to the realization of this interconnectedness and interdependence and, you know, et cetera, of when it comes to like knowing ourselves, there's maybe, um, and maybe tightrope is not the right word, but maybe in some sort of Buddhist teaching, like a middle way. I think of um, like Oscar Wilde, I think, said something like only the shallow know themselves. You know, so it's like we want in a way where we have this desire for certainty and we want to know and we want to put on some particular hat in a, in a way, you know, to maybe use the mass thing of put something on, not necessarily taking something yeah. off. So I'm curious, any thoughts come up about, you know, the, the middle way or uh, around knowing ourselves. There's no plan that will ever work. I think that that's the first, <laughs> that's the first thing yeah. that pops in my mind. Yeah. Um, you know, in asset based community development, there's a saying questions are more important than answers. And 
mm-hmm. when you do asset-based community development work, uh, in large part, it is a facilitator that comes into a community and just is there to hold a space and ask the questions that no one else is is willing to ask because of rank and position and identity privilege, like all of that stuff within a community. But the questions are more important than answers piece always sticks with me because when you ask a question, when it comes to this, these, these deep inner work questions, you know, who am I? It's not that there's one answer that we want one answer. We want that certainty. We want the, the 10 point plan that will get us there, which, you know, every author has their four points to success or whatever, you know, their version of it. Um, but no plan gets us there because when you ask a question, the answer is not the goal. The goal is that in the giving your posture to allowing yourself to ask the question, some new things will emerge from within you, things that are already there. Howard Thurman talks about the sound of the genuine that emanates up from within us. And I think that's so powerful is that I can sit with my question of, you know, who am I for years? And I'm probably never going to get a full answer that feels full to me. But what I will find is that in giving my posture to asking that question and sitting in that in-between space of not having an answer, I'm probably going to allow myself to to experience a lot more things than I would have otherwise if I was closed off to that question. Yeah, it's so good. Um, and, and Thomas Merton, someone I'm a huge fan of, um, says something along the lines of like the question oftentimes like is the answer you know it's like the question is the uh the thing but it 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 connects with another chapter that i i really appreciated in the book of um you know this thing of of feeling alone i want to read something i made a note of something you wrote in the book uh it says feeling alone does not only come from a lack of contact or deep connection with other humans but ultimately from a fragmented view of the universe itself. Could you unpack that a bit and maybe speak to this, um, you know, something that probably connects with a lot of people that are listening, this, um, you know, feeling of, of being alone. So something that's key and core to my worldview is that we are at an, like base level, molecular level, we are related to everything. Um, that's that's core to my spirituality. That's that's core to my like scientific understanding of reality. Um, you know, I think Neil deGrasse Tyson said it, but I think he was just parroting uh, what Carl Sagan said, uh, which is we're all stardust, and it's just scientifically true <laughs> based on based on our current understanding of science um, and of the universe, and so. When I talk about not feeling alone, I think a lot of us feel alone because human to human connection has been distanced so much. And we have been taught that, and this is a lot of um, Christianity did this to the West um, and, and other religions, but Christianity definitely in the West. Christianity has taught that humans are above everything else. There's a hierarchy. And so not only do we feel distanced from each other, but we are also sitting in this cult, this longstanding cultural belief that, um, that my closeness with my pet, you know, my, my dog Pez, um, doesn't count as much as a human connection. 
or my connection with the water doesn't count as much as a human connection. And so when I talk about feeling alone, even if we are not connected with another person, it cannot possibly mean we're ever alone because we still can have relationships that are deep with with pets and with what, when you're going out walking with with the natural world. The shift that has to be made, um, and this is a big shift. This is not easy. This is I'm still working on it. Um, but being able to be aware of that connection more and more. Because when I'm out walking and I'm I'm just listening to a podcast, and my head's down and I'm just going. Um, I'm not thinking I'm related to that tree, right? I'm just I'm just going. But when I give myself to the moment of, you know, when I the the space I work, we uh, the, our big office building is right on a park, and so on my breaks I get to go and I get to see the ducks landing and the geese and also some like high school kids and just like running through acting fools like they do. Um, and all of that gets to be so joyful for me when I'm in a space and, and holding a posture that I can say this, I am part of this. I am not separate from uh, the natural world. I'm not separate from others. I am a part of this uh, ridiculous ecosystem. <laughs> uh, and so even though I might feel alone as in disconnected from another human, I'm not alone in the grand scheme of things. What are the practices will, that will allow me to feel more connected to everything else? That's so good. I, I love it. And um, I don't know, I'm picturing someone sitting in the, in the park um, and uh, like being open to receive that, being open to, you know, experience that, that connection. Um, you know, it connects a little bit with uh, the chapter on, on love where it's like, sometimes we seems like overlook the thing of being able to receive or being open to whether it's love and, you know, all sorts of, of different things. It's such an interesting thing. I think so much of this is posture. We, we have been, almost all of us have been raised up in a culture of go, 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 do, do, do. You are what you do. You are not anything else. Um, run on the hamster wheel, climb the ladder, right? Like any of those things. Um, and I'll, and I'll go to my growing up as a, as a young boy, rub some dirt on it, keep going. Right. Um, don't sit with your feelings. And I, what is lost in all of those lessons and, and platitudes and just garbage nonsense. Uh, what's, what's lost in so much of that is the ability to simply sit and pay attention and to be aware so whether it's love or whether it's connection or whether it's just, hey, I've got a muscle spasm in my back, right? Like any of those things, building the capacity and the posture. Um, when I say posture, you know, obviously it's not just physical postures, the, the openness, um, building the capacity to be open to the universe as it is, both internally and externally out of our, outside of our bodies. I think that's the great... Um, stretch point learning point for so many of us and i'll speak for those in the west like on behalf of those in the west but i think that's probably true for everyone is that how do we become more and more human as we get older how do we understand on an experiential level more and more of what it means to be human 
What are the feelings of being human? What are the experiences of being a human walking amongst other humans and ducks and tree, right? It, so much of that, the baseline is awareness and the openness to be aware. It's a fascinating thing. I, I made a note of one of the questions that you have in the, um, the, I'm calling the chapter on love, but the actual constriction is I am not lovable. Um, but you, you know, you ask, how do you define love? And it seems like, you know, asking some of these questions, getting a bit of clarity, I mean, something so much of what Socrates and many other people were, you know, talking about more than 2000 years ago, and we'll, we'll get to it in a bit of something I ask everybody that comes on is, you know, what is wisdom? But I don't know, another thing, it seems like we can jump over like the clarity of what do we actually mean by some of these things? Yeah. It's, it's, I think those, the reason I actually really appreciate the way we started this conversation was getting clear on terms, right? And mm. I think that is so important. If we all just took a year or five and every week uh, asked ourselves, what does this mean? Right? Like, what is my interpretation of this? What is love to me? I think there is so much power in that because almost every term that we use is loaded and is different for everyone. Um, I think it's it's in that chapter where I talk about, you know, the word love, like for some people, that's a very sentimental feeling word. For some people, that's a really ugly word because they've experienced trauma around spaces that were supposed to be soft and uh, squishy spaces of love. Right. Um, for some people, love is a transactional thing. You give it to get it. And for some people, love is something that you can tap into and feel all the time and it's freely just present. Um, and so I, I think the questions of, you know, what is love or, you know, uh, what is a job? I think is a question that I've been thinking about a lot in the last year. It's like, I've been taught a job is something you get and you stay in for as long as you possibly can. And yet in our economy, like that's, that's not real. <laughs> Very few people have one job they stay in for their careers. And so, what are the the terms by that we take for granted and what are the very simple questions right we don't need a once again we don't need a plan we don't need a 50 plus list of these are the questions you need to know just what is x and spend years yeah. just working on that and I, I think you a few minutes back i think you asked the question like you know what does it mean to be a human being yeah you know there are like a half a dozen questions and uh i love if if i heard correctly you know of a year you know you could spend a year and maybe a lifetime living with um some of these questions and getting a bit of clarity and maybe they change a bit as, as you change and everything else is is changing um such an interesting thing but i'm curious if you sometimes think about like, for example, what is love? When I was asking about, um, you know, connection and fragmented from the universe, you said specifically, this is my kind of core view and, and belief. And maybe I'm adding core, but a view and belief. It seems like some of these definitions, if we could maybe spend a year and get clear on 
what love means to us, that it, in a way, seems like it becomes a particular core view and belief that is uh, running a bit deeper. Yeah. This is the autopilot piece. If we if we don't spend, at least for me, like if we don't spend any time, um, extended time, with the questions that pop up or with the terms, right? If we don't spend extended time with it, we run on autopilot with whatever is, has been fed to us because we become what we eat when it comes to cultural narratives. And so I think there's a lot of, I think I don't like to use the word personal growth necessarily, but I, I think there is a lot of just um, deepening that can occur right? Uh, personally and communally, personally and communally, a lot of deepening that can occur if you can sit with one of those questions for an extended amount of time and just see what emerges, um, right? So once again, like, who knows if I'm going to come to an answer? I don't know if it'll shape my core belief. I don't, I don't know. We'll see what happens. Um, but uh, unless we give ourselves to a process then my my gut my gut tells me unless i give myself to the process of questioning my future is going to um my future beliefs are probably going to be very similar to my current beliefs and that works great if i feel like certainty is my goal in life right if i am like a fundamentalist to my current beliefs then questions become dangerous but if but if openness and curiosity is a value of mine then i don't need to be certain and i can say like this is what i think right now but like I'll spend a year with this question, find out, <laughs> find out what else pops up. So yeah, that's, I think that going back to that initial story with, with Dale, I think that's so much of my curiosity around the institutions that we have been told uh, to go to for wisdom or for eldering, right? Like so many of those spaces they've in the, I don't, it differs for every space, but my feeling is that so many of those spaces have given themselves to similar to what schools have given themselves to, which is let's just run a curriculum. Let's, let's train teachers or pastors or priests or, you know, let's train people up to be able to run a curriculum. And what gets yeah. lost in a curriculum is the uniqueness of each person's journey with the questions that are emerging within themselves. Uniqueness. I, um, it, it makes me think as we're chatting about, you said you um, attended the, the living school from the, uh, the center of action and contemplation that was started by Richard Rohr and a few other uh, people that show up in your, in your book and have mentioned, but he talks about the most important word is the and action and contemplation. Sometimes I've thought like some of these words of, um, like how do you define love or or wisdom the the uncertainty of you might come to the realization you know spending enough of time there of many ands it's like love is this and it's that and it's that and it's you know it's a it's a there's many many ands in some of these important questions which um, in a way is beautiful and it's, you know, just this amazing and, you know, wonder and curiosity. But then it seems like for the false self, maybe 
that doesn't sit so well, just like as this, you know, we're stardust or, you know, sitting with the question, who am I? The false self doesn't so much care for, for some of that. And, and if it does, it wants a certain answer. <laughs> like, yeah. like, let's pick yeah, one. exactly. Let's pick, <laughs> let's make this multiple choice, please. Um, yeah, I think that's the, the false self, that part of us that wants certainty. Um, it also like, it's almost like if it if it can't slow down the train before it starts, if it can't stop you from asking a question, it certainly wants you to get to get you um, to an answer as fast as possible. And I think that's where a lot of people who come out of um, I'll, I'll speak to some friends of mine. A lot of my friends who come out of fundamentalist religious backgrounds, the second they're out, they quickly shift to almost becoming a fundamentalist of a different one. Right. Um, they'll they'll shift from a fundamentalist Christian to a fundamentalist progressive Christian. Right. Like they'll they'll shift. And it's because the second those questions pop up, they're the part of themselves that we, we are using the word false self or the phrase false self wants to find a certain answer very quickly or wants to find another label to put on it. Because being in the in between being in the and is terrifying. It's beautiful, but beauty is something you almost have to give yourself to, right? That's why it's so amazing when we are completely struck by beauty because it's a moment where we weren't necessarily giving ourselves, but it showed up anyway. Um, those are rare moments, but the giving yourself to the end is giving yourself to, to beauty and being able to sit with it for a while or the ducks in the park, right? Being able to sit with it for a while and say, no, ah, maybe, maybe I'll fudge the 10 minute break a little bit. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah. 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 Let me throw a difficult question at you. At least I think it's a difficult question. Maybe, maybe you don't, but say from, um, I mean, we've talked about introspection, awareness, this, this thing of, uh, embodiment, like, you know, becoming aware of, of maybe what's going on within the body that oftentimes we're just not, not necessarily tuned, tuned into, then then what what's what's like the smallest action that that comes to mind for someone's listening that is you know thinking of now now what how do i put this into practice yeah. i'll share two um they're not really stories frameworks um that have helped been helped very helpful for me so the first is just imagery um so my my dad and i this last year went walking on the camino de santiago in spain and uh, for those of you who haven't walked that before, it's largely you wake up early in the morning. Uh, if you're a coffee person, you find coffee however you possibly can. Uh, whether it's, you know, you walk five miles and then you find a little town that has some or, or you you wake up in a space and there's coffee magically there. But you get walking and they're, you know, you're walking 10, 15 plus miles a day. And so my dad and I, we would start walking and it'd be early and we wouldn't really be talking much. And then somewhere in the second to third hour, we'd start just chatting. And there was one day where my dad was telling me this story about a woman he once knew who she was a dancer by trade, ballet dancer by trade. Uh, but the energy she carried was just kindness and openness and a, an ability to just kind of ad lib and make things with what she gets. She had dancer energy is what we were, we were naming. And what I thought of immediately as my dad said dancer energy is i thought of dale from my church story because i was like and that's curmudgeon energy and and that <laughs> is a 
I don't usually like the dualism imageries, but it's really helped me is there's this dancer energy that is able to respond to the world with an, with that open posture. And then there's the curmudgeon energy that is blowing trauma through other people's bodies. The curmudgeon is someone that's our word for someone who gets older and hasn't become acquainted with their inner life. So your question of what's next after the awareness piece, um, on a big scale, I think, how do you dance little by little in your communities a little bit more? How are you open and willing to respond and listen and creatively generate new things that haven't been there before? And the framework I use for that, um, I just, in the book, I refer to them as the spheres of influence. And this isn't my, like, this isn't, um, organic to me. Um, it's just a framework that's been really helpful is thinking about, we each have three different spheres of influence. We have our personal sphere. Those are the people who are really close to us. So our family members, for some of us, uh, our tight friend groups, maybe, but the people that our, our voice, our questioning, our presence carries some weight. You know, if I say something, I'm not going to be immediately disowned from the, from the in group. And I might actually be able to shift someone's thought or opinion. And then we have our, um, our communal sphere of influence or communal spheres. Those are like one step further in relations. This maybe job sites, volunteer spaces, boards we might sit on, right? Like um, sports teams, schools, spaces where you're not like tight, tight with people there, but there's a rhythm of you seeing them and your voice still carries weight. You might not use your voice in that space, uh, but if you did, it would carry some weight because of your uh, experience, your uh, length of time in that community, your identity privilege, your rank, right? All these things. And then there's the societal sphere, which is broad culture. Um, so here in the United States, broad United States, American culture. I think the next step to becoming more aware is that question of, and how do we dance in each of those spheres a little bit more. We're not going to go out and try to do a full waltz, right, on on the next step. But how do you do a little two-step, right, in each of those spaces? When I go into my personal sphere and I have noticed in my body that um, this thing I was taught by my dad doesn't really, I don't think it's it's true to my experience or I don't think that's really how I experience the world. Um, and it's damaging. It's harmful. How do I dance into my personal sphere where my dad is and ask the question that allows the personal sphere to to um, to investigate, to to name that harm maybe out loud? Or uh, another example would be, you know, if you and your personal sphere have an uncle that is uh, an alcoholic but has never named it, and the behavior there has been causing harm, what is the way that you can step into that personal sphere? from a space of awareness and openness, kindness, gentleness, and name the question that has so far gone unnamed or underexamined. The small little two-step. And then doing that in each space. So that's a personal sphere. Communal sphere, uh, for me, I'm dealing with this in my own in my own workspace, but all of our job sites have things that have gone unnamed or underexamined things that, you know, that maybe the bosses don't want to talk about, or if you're in a faith community that's been dwindling in membership, like what are the root causes, right? These are things that a lot of people don't want to talk about. And so what are the ways that you can two-step into that space and ask the question that opens up the um, open, both opens up the conversation 
and prepares people's and central nervous systems to be able to handle the conversation. Um, and those are very different things. I, I know lots of people like bull in China shop mentality will go into a communal space and be like, we need to talk about this, but they haven't helped support the culture of that space, being able to hold it with the, at each individual central nervous system. And so you get defensiveness and rage and nothing productive. Um, so what is the way you step into that space and, and hold that? Uh, and then the societal sphere is the, the final one. And this comes in two different, I, I think about the societal sphere in two different ways. One is uh, large ways of organizing. These are people that you don't know. Um, and yet it has to do with something that is so pervasive, even through all of your spheres and other people's spheres that you feel like there needs to be a- action. And so this would be, this is where activism on a large cultural scale kicks in. Um, you know, in your societal sphere, if there's a march going on down the street, how will you get over your own comforts and status quo to get yourself to that march? Or if you know, um, this is where the societal sphere starts to really um, be connected to the other spheres. If you know someone who is a policymaker, you know, in whatever sphere they're in, maybe they're a family member, maybe they're just, you just know them from church or whatever. Um, and there is a societal thing that is occurring, that harm is occurring. How are you going to both engage that societal sphere uh, issue, injustice, and your communal sphere by connecting with that person, you know, and using your your privilege, using the privilege that you have by knowing the person to be able to make change. And so this is where I think um, inner work can't be isolated work. Your inner work, if it stops there, and this is why I don't love personal growth as a, as a word because it's been co-opted by an, an entire industry. Um, inner work that stops at the inner means nothing. <laughs> uh, it's got to somehow show up in the way you're dancing. I love that. And I, lots of appreciation for the very practical approach and integrated approach that you uh that you bring to this work that's the teacher in me (laughs) yeah (laughs) i love it well i i mean um we've probably been chatting about wisdom you know throughout the the conversation here but maybe if you could uh put the teacher hat on and we can pretend one of your uh you know students back in the day hits you with this question of you know, what is wisdom? How should we think about wisdom in, in daily life? Is there any sort of um, brief response that, that might come to mind, Andrew? What is your capacity for being able to say yes? That, I think that's the, that's the question that comes to me from that question is, what is the capacity for wisdom in the capacity to say yes to life? Um, which shows up in lots of different practical ways openness, curiosity, um, holding a posture of, I don't know, and I don't need an answer, but I'm going to follow the, follow the current. I'm going to follow the, the questioning, the curiosity, whatever's emerging up in me. I think wisdom is, is a capacity that we build for being able to sit in the and, and being able to say, um, yeah, I think this is worthy of, of of seeking and worthy of of dancing into i i go back to that idea of blowing trauma through people's bodies just very tangibly what is wisdom 
how are you a healing force? How are you doing your own work so that you're not blowing your own insecurities and fears through other people? Because if we had that, if we had wise elders who weren't, who had done their stuff, had become acquainted with their inner life so that they're not negatively impacting others, that's an entirely transformed community. And I think my default there is to say world. And I don't want to go that big because I think the other piece about wisdom is that we're not trying to save the world and there's no saving or fixing or correcting involved. Wisdom is we are attempting to embody a new world right here in our community now. And so if you want a healed world, how can you be a healing force right now in, in your community? Love it. That is a great way to wrap it up. Thank you so much for for taking the time to come on. Again, your book is Unmasking the Inner Critic. Is there anything we we didn't share that maybe we should have and uh, maybe a spot that you could point listeners to to learn more about you and your work in the world? Well, we talked about time and just like this isn't a this isn't a there's no silver bullet there. This takes time. Um, and so one of the things I do that uh, is one of my passion projects is every Wednesday I send out an email and it has a very bite sized teaching from a wisdom teacher. So we mentioned some of them today, Richard Rohr, James Finley, Resma Menicum. And along with that teaching, I ask two questions and I give three resources And it's just for people to sit with during the week. Here are some questions that you can ruminate on, go for long walks with, drink your coffee with. And so I'd invite anyone, uh, if you're interested in beginning to do some of this very practical inner work, uh, that's that's one resource. And you can get that at my website, andrewglang.com. All right. Beautiful. Well, we'll link uh, that in the show notes along with the book. Andrew Lang, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you for listening. I hope you found something useful. If so, I encourage you to put what you heard into practice. You can learn more at perennialleader.com. There you'll find links to show notes, our daily email newsletter, and reading in the good life, a free weekly meetup. Until next time, be wise and be well.